Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And today we are joined by Sam Reynolds, a coral biologist from the UK who is currently working out of the Maldives with a focus on reef restoration. So thanks, Sam, for coming on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. No dramas at all. Um, Alrighty, so let's begin with an intro. Can you please tell the podcast who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Sam. I'm um, a marine biologist, coral biologist from the UK. I currently work at a luxury resort in the Maldives, taking care of their reef restoration program. Um, so yeah, I spend a lot of time in the water, a lot of time gardening with corals. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a really cool job. Okay, so the Maldives. So I said it wrong. So I didn't start, off, <laughs> start the podcast off on the right foot. So how do you pronounce it? Maldives. Maldives. Yeah. <laughs> like a, between an A and an O, Maldives. Yeah. Okay. And so you said, so you're a marine biologist and a coral biologist. So for those listening at home, if they're trying to perhaps grow up to become a coral biologist, is it the same pathway? Like you, you start off with marine biology and like you specialize towards the end? Is that how it happens? Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually started off doing conservation biology and ecology. Um, which is all terrestrial based actually. I had a couple of marine biology modules, but it was mainly focused on uh, more terrestrial um, ecosystems. Um, And then I did my master's degree in tropical marine biology. So I kind of specialized a little bit more than just general marine biology in my master's. I knew I didn't really want to work in cold water, so it seemed like a sensible option. Um, But by that point, I kind of already figured out that it was coral reefs that I was most interested in. Um, so it fit in with my, my plans mm-hmm. um, to go to the coral reef kind of research and biology. And then I learned a little bit more about coral itself and fell in love. Um, I just, it's fascinating coral. So <laughs> like, the more I learn, the more I want to learn. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into some of those fascinating parts in a sec. So what inspired you to become a coral biologist or a marine biologist in the first place? Is this something that you've always kind of had an inkling towards, like the marine ecosystem and marine species, or what was the inspiration? Um, well, I actually started off with wanting to just conserve wildlife and the environment in general, which is why I chose my bachelor's degree in conservation biology. Um, and actually, when I went into that, I kind of thought that I'd end up um on game reserves in southern africa um following like elephants or cheetahs or something that's where kind of things started but i'd always loved spending time at the beach um poking around in rock pools being in the ocean kind of grew up watching david attenborough which was kind of a nice balance between technology um so it wasn't until my final year in my bachelor's degree that i did some marine biology modules and that kind of got some wheels turning in my brain uh-huh. Uh, so after graduating, I kind of hadn't really decided what I wanted to do. So decided to kind of explore marine biology a little bit more. 
Um, ended up in the Bahamas for 10 weeks um, on a, a volunteer placement, learned to dive, um, learned to survey reefs. Um, and that's kind of where it all kicked off from there. Mm-hmm. Was the Bahamas the first time that you actually went diving? No, the first time I went diving was in a swimming pool in the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> okay. But like my first real introduction to diving, yeah, was in the Bahamas. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that I am still trying to fully wrap my head around uh, is what corals actually are. So I've created some a couple of infographics <clears throat> on Instagram about this, but I still don't completely understand what they are. So can you try and explain what corals are and how our coral reefs formed? Yeah, sure. Um, I can definitely understand why they're a little bit confusing because they don't look like what they actually are um, or traditionally what people think they are. Um, So they are actually animals and the animal part of the coral is called a polyp. Um, they're related to jellyfish and sea anemones, so that can kind of get your help you get your head around what they look like. They look like a small sea anemone or an upside down jellyfish. So they have tentacles that surround a mouth, and the mouth is actually kind of where they ingest their food, but also excrete their waste. So they have a single kind of stomach like body cavity where that exchange takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, so an upside then, gel, upside down jellyfish is a actually really um, good way to describe it because as soon as you said that, it was like, oh, that's actually very helpful. So they're related to jellyfish. They look like an upside down jellyfish with the, the legs kind of poking up from the top there. So And it's a polyp. So is the animal itself, so you said that coral polyps are animals. Is the actual yeah. name of the animal polyp or is it coral polyp or pulp or however you pronounce it? Well, we would just call it coral, coral. <laughs> because coral isn't just the, so the animal part is the polyp, but they secrete a calcium carbonate skeleton, which protects them. And that's what forms the coral reefs. Um, but to confuse things even further, they have an, a symbiotic relationship with an algae um, dinoflagellate called zeaxanthellae. And the zeaxanthellae is located in their in their body tissue. It gives the coral its color, um, but it also pre- um, provides the coral with about eighty to ninety percent of their nutrition through photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just going back, stepping through that coral formation process, so I can understand it. So it begins. So first, there needs to be kind of environmental conditions so the the water needs to be kind of at a certain temperature yeah. water's like between i think it's uh fish like between 26 and 30 degrees yeah um it's water temperature the water needs to be clear um and shallow so that the sunlight can get through the water so the corals can use that to photosynthesize mm-hmm. there needs to be good current to okay. bring other nutrients um so they can eat also the so they also feed heterotrophically as well so they use those tentacles um, which have got stinging cells in them called um, nematocysts or nidocytes which is where the nidarian um, kind of group comes from Um, and they use those kind of stinging tentacles to catch sea plankton bacteria um, organic matter in the water column and they 
draw their tentacles once they've caught something into their mouth. Mm-hmm. And so they, they also eat, <laughs> like, yeah, heterotrophically too. So they're eating, like, actual particles. Okay. That only makes up a small part of their diet. So they need a, so it's warmer. So the, the corals, they don't exist in the, the poles, do they? The north and south poles. It's no. kind of like yeah. a, a strip near the equator kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've got this, these set conditions, environmental conditions. That's yeah. kind of the first step. And then the second step is, so you have these polyps and then do they kind of just, you have these free swimming polyps and then they just so happen to latch onto like a rock or a physical structure underwater. And then is that like the, the, the beginning of that, that reef building process? It begins from that moment where a polyp attaches to, say, a, a rock underwater. Just before the polyp, you have a free swimming larvae. So the larvae looks a bit like a, a bean. Um, they're, they're, they're microscopic. They're only like a, you know, micrometers um, or micromillimeters long. So they're free swimming in the water column and they pick up on environmental cues um, and chemical cues in in like the reef environment. Um, and one of the things that gives off those chemical cues that let the coral know that it's a good place to settle and attach and grow is um, an algae called crustose coralline algae, which looks a bit like pink chalk paint that's been painted over the rocks. Um, so that gives off a chemical cue that signals to the larvae, hey, like, come over here. This is a good place to settle. Um, it's a good environment. We've got food. We've got light. Um, we've got good water conditions. So the larvae will kind of sniff its way along the reef or along the rocks until it finds like a good place to settle. Uh, and then it will uh, attach onto the rock. And over the next um, few days, it develops it goes through metamorphosis and it develops from a polyp uh, a larvae into a polyp okay so the, the larvae isn't a, a baby polyp not yet no <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite confusing <laughs> ah okay so metamorphosizes yeah but bef- the larvae is not a baby polyp that that particular larvae isn't a baby larvae polyp. Is larvae and then it metamorphosizes into a polyp. Okay. Okay. All right. So we've got that. So this this larvae, can that move? So it's very tiny. Can that move freely on its own or is that purely dictated by the currents of the ocean? It's dictated by the currents of the ocean. Um, oh, this is really complex. Um, <laughs> so... The the way that they are able to kind of float around in the ocean is because, so most corals will broadcast spawn. So they release sperm and eggs or bundles of sperm and eggs into the water. Mm. And eggs have um, a lot of lipid reserves, so fatty fatty acids, and they're really floaty. Um, So the egg sperm bundles, once they're released by the corals, coral colonies, they float up to the surface. And they start breaking apart, and fertilization happens. And then the coral is once once they've been fer- once the eggs been fertilized by the sperm from another coral or by the same coral as well. Sometimes um, a larvae forms, and they'll use up those lipid reserves, so those fats, and that allows them to sink slowly mm-hmm. down to the, to the rocks. And that's when they'll start kind of moving along the top of the reef, um, mm-hmm. using this. They have cilia, so very 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 small hairs um, on them that allow them to move. 
Okay. So the larvae, they found their little home. They're like, this is pretty cool. They metamorphosize. Yeah. Is that how you say yeah. it? Anyway, they metamorphosize. They turn into a coral polyp. Polyp, yeah. Which is a inverted jellyfish. Yeah. And then they excre- they excrete like a cal- calcium carbonate. Yeah, calcium carbonate from underneath from underneath. Yeah, from underneath. Yes, like, yeah, so they start building up this skeleton. Yeah. Um, and then once the first polyp has attached and started to secrete the skeleton, um, they start to clone themselves. So that polyp will then split into two. And you have two polyps that are next to each other. And then those two polyps will both split and you'll have four polyps. And those four will split and you'll have eight. So this is how the corals grow. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of explains why they grow so slowly because it's they're literally like splitting themselves in half yeah. to grow new polyps. Okay, so when they split themselves in half, so there was one and now there's eight which originated from that that one. Is that yeah. considered eight animals or one animal? Good question. Um, one animal, I would say. I don't know whether that's the right answer or not. Um, but their tissue, the, the tissue of the polyps are all connected. Yeah. Um, so they can't work as one. Okay, so the, the tissues are connected. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so they've, 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 they're getting bigger. And mm-hmm. so you mentioned one way the larvae knows where to kind of settle is they kind of detect this chemical signal from a specific algae. Yeah. And one way that the polyps get their energy is from that photosynthesis or that symbiotic um, relationship with an algae in their tissue. Yeah. Is that the same algae or is that a different algae? No, it's a different algae. Okay. Um, the algae they have in their tissue, depending on the species and their, their mode of reproduction, they can either inherit from their parents or they um, kind of collect it from the water. Okay. All right. Cool. I think I think I know. I understand it better. I didn't realize that metamorphosis part. That's kind of blown my mind a wee bit. But, <laughs> um, okay, I think I can understand that. Um, are there different species of polyp or different types of coral polyp pulp polyp yeah um well there's like hundreds of different coral species so this is where like you get the differences in the corals so there's actually like in the tropics very very broadly speaking there's two types of coral you have soft corals and you have hard corals um so as their name suggests one of the ways you can tell them apart is that hard corals have this hard skeleton made out of calcium carbonate whereas the soft corals don't have a skeleton so much that's they have um they do have a, a, a more rigid body but it doesn't come from like a calcium carbonate skeleton as you would see on on the hard corals okay so they don't ex- 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 excrete that no okay all right uh, another difference is that the hard corals their tentacles are in multiples of six Whereas the soft corals, their poly- their tentacles, sorry, are uh, multiples of eight. Um, so hard corals are known as um, hexacorallia, so like six, and soft corals are octocorallia, meaning eight. Ah, oh, okay. So soft corals have the eight tentacles, hard yeah. corals have the six. Yeah. 
Ooh, okay, I'm gonna add that to a trivia one one day soon. <laughs> okay. Okay, interesting. That actually is super interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> what now? Going probably into some more of the heavy heavier stuff. What is the current state of coral reefs around the world, and how does that compare to the past? Yeah, so the current state of coral reefs around the world is not great. Um, it's a pretty dire situation. Um, there are pockets of areas that are absolutely fine. Um, they're thriving, doing well. But the vast majority of reefs have suffered from coral bleaching um, and other kind of climate-related issues over the last... 20 to 30 years um we've had three mass bleaching events the first one being in 1998 second one around 2010 and then most recently in 2016 there or thereabouts like there's a lot probably a bit of variation um, as you move around the globe so take the maldives for example um in 1998 or before 1998 um coral reefs were very very healthy um after the 1998 bleaching the percentage coral cover dropped dramatically and it took 12 years for those reefs to recover which takes it to 2010 when there was another bleaching event um which again relatively like they had a, a relatively bad effect or negative impact on the reefs in the maldives um so again, just as the corals were getting to kind of pre-recovery levels uh, or kind of moving in that direction, in 2016, there was another mass bleaching event. And so kind of put that into perspective, the islands that I work on, um, they had an environmental impact assessment carried out in 2015, so before the bleaching. The highest coral cover around the island was about um, 85%, but on average, it was about 67%. And uh, now in 2017, after the coral bleaching, they had a second environmental impact assessment carried out and coral cover around the island dropped to an average of 3.6%. What? Yeah. Say, say that change again. So it went from around an average of 67% coral cover to around 3.6%. And that's from the that, that um, coral bleaching... Yeah. event that happened in 2016 yeah. yeah so those dates were 1998 2010 2016 yeah and what why those dates was is that correlated to like as like why why those dates what, what was the common variable between those three dates so the common variable would have been the an extreme el nino event okay yeah okay and what can you explain what actual what what coral bleaching actually what actually is and what informs the bleaching so it's the change of uh, temperature warming specifically yeah so, so in the tropics you don't have so much like have uh, four seasons you have the wet season and the dry season um and historically coral bleaching is actually something that happens every year it's kind of a defense mechanism um of the corals so you have the wet season, you have a lot of rain, the wind it picks up, so the water is quite choppy, um, you get a lot of water movement, um, 
and the combination of the rains and the winds cools the water down. But then you move into the dry season and the winds change um, where they drop off near enough completely, um, meaning that there's not so much impact on the surface of the water. So the surface of the water is very calm um, and you also have a lot less rain. Um, so the combination of no rain or very little rain and calm waters means that the sunlight can penetrate the water better and it slowly warms up the water. And it's a combination of this um, increased sunlight and increased water temperatures um, where the corals to eject some of their algae. Um, so yes, algae, the algae, the Zizantelli, um produces, you know, up to 85, 90% of the coral's nutrition each day. Um, but one of the byproducts of photosynthesis is oxygen and too much photosynthesis causes like oxygen radicals to form and too many oxygen radicals are you know bad for the corals just as they are for us oxygen radicals are basically what cause us to age um so if you put that into the corals then it's kind of a similar thing so um to reduce the amount of oxygen they're producing they eject some of their algae and um, which takes away some of that color um because you remember the color the color comes from the zizanthelli um and they go pale um and in some cases, they eject all of their algae and go completely white um, because their tissue is translucent and you can see through to their white skeleton underneath. Um, so in the past, this was quite cyclical. So it would uh, the, the water temperatures would be right at the end of the dry season. They've had you know four or five months of flat, calm water, lots of sun, and um, it's kind of reached the height of the kind of the, the top temperature that the water would get to. And then a couple of weeks later, the rains would come, the winds would pick up and the water would quickly cool down again. Um, the corals would ingest the algae again. They'd bring it back into their body from the water column and they'd be able to carry on with their lives and they'd be absolutely fine. Uh, some of them kind of may have led to mortality, but in general, um, the corals would have been fine. Um, but what's happening now due to kind of human induced climate change um, is that that period where or between when the waters get too hot and when the rains come, has increased so instead of it being a few weeks it's sometimes a few months um, and that's a few months where the corals aren't being able to use their algae to produce the majority of their food so they starve okay so um you mentioned that it's cyclical and this yeah. human-induced climate change is making is affecting that kind of that cycle and making it longer, longer. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the elevated temp, the, the temperatures are elevated higher. So um, in the Maldives, once the water gets to about 31 degrees, that's when the corals start bleaching. Okay. And that does vary in other places, depending on what the average kind of annual temperature is. Right. Um, and yeah, happening for a longer period of time. Okay. So when the coral goes through this bleaching process, let me just go back one sec. So the color of the coral comes from the, the algae. Yeah, it largely comes from the color of the algae. Okay. Yeah. All right. So when the the coral goes through this, sorry, when I'm thinking, I close my eyes. No, people listening That's can't. <laughs> people listening can't see that, but um, probably looks a bit weird from your perspective. Um, so the coral, when they go through this bleaching process, that doesn't. That means that the the algae they've rejected the algae. Yeah. Therefore, the color goes away. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the coral is dead. No, no. no. It just means that the, it just means that the algae is is no longer there, and they can't. 
um, there's less energy coming in. Yeah. But this isn't necessarily a, a lethal thing because this, like you mentioned, this has historically been cyclical. It's happened. But the difference now is because of climate change, when the algae leaves because of that temperature increase, it's a longer duration. Yeah. And it's that longer duration which affects the, the energy intake. And it's that, is it that that potentially kills them? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. Yeah, because um, they, they get about like 80% of their energy from sunlight through the algae. Okay. The other 10 to 20% comes from the food they catch in the water column. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for this coral bleaching, is there a way to to measure whether a coral is has entered that that phase how is there a way to measure that yeah that is um because we kind of know when the bleaching will start happening like you know in different regions of the world it will happen around the same kind of time each year um and also like if you're in the water a lot especially if you're diving you if you, with your dive computer you have a temperature gauge on there as well so it'll tell you what the temperature of the water is so as soon as it kind of starts to to rise um what we do is we use um coral watch um which they've produced a data card um it's a square card with a different color on each side um so you've kind of got like a, a reddish color a green a greenish color a brownish color and like a, a yellowish color um and on, in one corner it's a it's a white square and then in the opposite corner like along one side it's like the darkest kind of of that color and then increments in between so you can use this card and kind of do some quite crude surveys um there are like other ways of doing it but this is a way that like, a lot of people do it because it's um it's really simple it's, it's a great way to um collect a lot of data in a short amount of time and um, because you don't have to have any kind of real formal training to be able to do it so you take this card with you snorkeling or diving underwater and you find a coral and you so not the corals won't all they won't necessarily bleach uniformly and um, so you find the darkest part of the colony and you match that up to one of the squares and you note that color down and then you find the lightest part of the colony and you match that up with one of the squares and you write down that code as well so you'll have like the lightest part versus the darkest part and you can go back and survey the same area week on week and see how these this like these colors change Okay, so you mentioned that they don't change uniformly. Is that because they're different species or there's just um, micro kind of differences in climate and like underwater? Yeah, it's not so much like uh, the, with one colony, it's not so much the differences in the climate. It's whether parts of the colony are more shaded than other parts because as you remember me saying, it's not just an impact from the temperature of the water it's also the amount of so light they're getting okay so with that like the older corals like on the bottom like around the edges it might be darker than it is like right on the top where it's going to be getting the most light the same with the branches the branch some of the branches that are shaded by others might be darker than the ones that are kind of more exposed to light mm -hmm. okay let's move on to some some threats so what are the major threats to coral reefs um this varies so much. So some of the biggest, well, the biggest threat obviously is climate change um, having those kind of long periods of elevated temperatures. Um, 
But there are another, like, quite a few other threats. So in the Caribbean, they're suffering from like a rapid tissue loss disease. Um, so lots of coral diseases are affecting different areas of the world. But in the Caribbean and the Florida Keys, um, it's the diseases that have had like one of the biggest impacts. Um, pollution um, from agricultural runoff um, or kind of other forms of pollution affect the corals. Um, one of the hot topics at the moment is sun cream, which is valid, but kind of takes away from some of the other bigger issues. But it is a good example of what um, chemical pollution can do to corals. It can disrupt their hormones, um, which will disrupt their kind of reproductive cycle. Um, as a result of coral bleaching, um, when the corals die, you get a lot of algal growth. Um, and this kind of big like macro algaes that will smother the reef. And then that takes away space for new corals to settle and grow. And um, so that can have a big impact on coral, coral recruitment. Um, so new corals coming to the reef and growing and, and forming uh, new areas of reef. Um, again, in the Caribbean and related to algae, um, sea urchins are really important because they eat algae. And um, so they can help keep these areas of kind of substrate or rock clean um, so that they, there is space for corals to settle and grow. Um, but there was a big algae die off in, I think it was the 19, a big, sorry, sea urchin die off in the 1980s, I think. And this has had a big impact on the reefs in, in the Caribbean. Mm. Okay. Um, in Australia, on the Great Barrier Reef, with a lot of um, kind of agricultural runoff, um, added nutrients in the water, um, there's a, been a big increase in the number of crown of thorn starfish. Um, and crown of thorn starfish are coral eaters. So they will feed on the coral at night. Um, one of the other big impacts that has kind of stopped the number of crown of thorns um, being controlled is um, their main predator, um, the triton shell, is has kind of historically been used for souvenirs. So a lot of these shells have taken off the reef and they don't have like so many of their natural predators around. Okay. So you mentioned, so I'm currently in, in Brisbane, so Great Barrier Reef just down the road um agriculture so that's suffering from agriculture runoff yeah what, what form of agriculture agriculture do you do you know no it's, it's mostly from like um pesticides and just like when when it rains like a lot like it kind of washes off kind of topsoil and like all the nutrients and things so it's just water like Okay, and that, and that just makes its way to the ocean just through yeah, the drainage yeah, system and yeah. blah blah blah. Okay, yeah. All right, so that chemical pollution is 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 affecting the the coral reefs in a in a bad way. Yeah. Okay, so we've established that coral reefs are probably not the healthiest I've ever been. Um, climate change is a major contributor, plus these other things that you mentioned. Yeah, um, but the question is not on my mind, but probably some people's minds is why should we save coral reefs in the first place? Why are they important to the ecosystem, marine ecosystem and, and how do they affect human society? Yeah, that is a really good question. So coral reefs are very small in comparison to the rest of the ocean. They only make up, you know, about 0.01% of the ocean floor. However, um, they're home to about 25% of marine life and about a third of all marine life will spend at least part of their life cycle on a reef. 
So they provide like nursery grounds, breeding grounds for a lot of other species. Um, because of the nature of the structure of coral reefs um, is quite complex. So there's lots of hidey holes. So um, this is why you have like a lot of the nursery grounds on the reef because the the juveniles of the species can like hide the reef. So it's great for protection. Um, they coral reefs produce a lot of oxygen. Um, so that's one way they can help humans. Um, and they also sequester carbon. Um, so the ocean itself absorbs a lot of carbon um, from the atmosphere and through kind of rainfall and things. But coral reefs and corals themselves, they use some of that carbon to produce their skeletons. So they can kind of they yeah, sequester it and yeah. absorb it and use it in the in the calcium carbonate okay. skeleton. So in terms of how they affect humans, that's one way is through that they they collect that um that carbon. Yeah. And also they help the actual marine organisms and, you know, within that coral reef ecosystem and those large animals probably affect humans as well. Yeah. Like perhaps, you know, the, the tourism industry, for example, that's affects a lot of people's daily lives and, and their lifestyles. And, and without these coral reefs, there'd be less of these fish and less of these, this, this tourism, um, just for one example. Okay. That's one thing I like to, to go over is how it actually affects human beings because, um, you know, a lot of human beings, well, we're, we're human beings are selfish by nature. That's how, this is how we are made. And, in order to kind of convince someone to care for someone, I think it's important to, to, to convey to them why it's important for them, for their personal gain. You know, we should pr protect these corals because you'll gain this in return. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So we, in the Maldives, you work, um, you, you have a focus on reef restoration. Yeah. Can you talk about what that actually means and why it's important? Yeah, so reef restoration or reef rehabilitation um, is basically a process whereby humans can help the reef recover after an, an environmental event like coral bleaching. Um, it's not going to be the single thing that saves coral reefs, but it is kind of the intermediary between um, not having coral reefs in the future and kind of sustaining coral reefs in the future because essentially the, the only the one of the ways that we're going to be able to ensure that we have coral reefs far into the future is by reducing carbon emissions around the globe and kind of stopping that 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 warming that's currently happening um but to ensure that we still have coral around when that happens um yeah the reef restoration is kind of like that's that's what we're doing we're ensuring that we will have some coral um into the future so what we do is we have uh, we follow the two-step gardening concept. So we collect corals of opportunity. Um, so these are corals that and coral fragments that, if left where they are, they have a very low chance of survival um, because they've either been broken off and they are um, going to get smothered in sand, um, or they are being outcompeted by a neighbouring coral. 
um, that is growing faster than they are, um, or they're being smothered by algae. Um, part of the coral is um, affected by a disease or is showing partial bleaching. Um, so we take these corals and break them into fragments and put them into a coral nursery. And the nursery method that we're currently using um, are coral trees. Um, they're PVC pipes that are um, built into these tree-looking structures that we anchor to a concrete base in deeper water. So for us, our anchors are in 13 metres. Um, the trees are then tethered to that base and float in the middle of the water column at about six metres. And the advantage of using this method is that the structure isn't touching the sand or any of the substrate. So you have less chance of predators eating the coral or getting onto that structure to be able to eat the coral. Um, there's less algal growth and therefore less chance of the spread of disease. The corals are also in the middle of the water column, so they get a lot of sunlight and they get a lot of water movement, a lot of nutrients um, passing by. And having them tethered with rope means that during the dry monsoon, when it's going to get warmer, we can shorten that rope and bring the coral nursery deeper into the water column and protect them a little bit more from the sun. And then during the wet season, where it's a bit more rough and they're not getting so much sunlight, we can lengthen that rope and bring them up close to the surface so they're able to get um, more sunlight. So that helps to kind of maximise um, growth. So after about nine to ten months, uh, nine to twelve months, the corals will go from being about four or five centimeters long fragments to small, kind of tennis ball-shaped um, and sized colonies, which we can then start to plant back onto the reef. Okay, so that's reef restoration. So you find little, um, I can't remember what you call them, but little broken-off pieces which w would likely die. Otherwise, yeah. you take them back on shore to a nursery and you grow them out of yeah, well, our farm nursery is actually out in the ocean so we have what we call an in-situ nursery oh, okay. which are ocean-based nurseries and then you can have ex-situ nurseries which are kind of land-based nurseries that you would have kind of in aquarium tanks yeah and then so you, you, you they're in this nursery they grow they get bigger and stronger and then when you put them back into the ocean you, you place them on a, a man-made structure a man-made structure yeah yeah again and they, and they grow off that have there been any new technologies around kind of man-made like an inf man-made infrastructure for, yeah, for reefs a, like 3d printing kind of stuff yeah like yeah there's a an australian i believe he's australian he's based out of australia um who has 3d printed molds to create ceramic structures that are then put together underwater and you can attach corals onto them and they grow. Uh, I mean, honestly, there's so many different methods for coral restoration and we just use one of them. Um, artificial restructures is definitely another way of doing it where, um, then, yeah, the artificial restructures are great for places where you haven't got necessarily got the substrate to attach the corals onto themselves, whether that's because they've um, there's been a ship grounding that's kind of smashed the coral it's just a rubble field it's really unstable and putting corals onto rubble unstable rubble is not going to help them grow so you can put artificial restructures on these areas to kind of help build the complexity of the reef but also give um, the coral something solid to grow onto um sea core is a great organization and they do reef restoration a little bit differently because they start with 
coral larvae rather than coral fragments. And they allow they collect a lot the the um, the spawn from uh, mass spawning events um, of different species. They mix the sperm and eggs in um, a lab, rear coral larvae, and then they use these um, ceramic tetrapods um, structures. They kind of you know you hold them in in your hand, kind of size, and they allow the corals to settle on those. Um, kind of rear them up again so that they are settled and they are kind of attached and then they'll go out onto the reef and plant these tetrapods onto the reef um, so that you'll kind of have a much have bigger chances of those corals growing and and you've created a lot more kind of new genetic material okay interesting so from a practical perspective if you were to so the the coral in order to kind of grow that they, they need a a physical foundation to to grow upon so mm. kind of like a concrete slab to a house yep okay um so if you were to the only um benefit to um the only reason to man or artificially human make a physical structure is if there is no as if there is only like kind of like a sandy surface. Yeah. Like there's no other reason, like there there would be no other practical reason to do it unless there was actually no foundation there in the first place. Yeah. Like that's, that's the biggest practical reason to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So coming from me, coming from my architecture background, that makes a lot of sense having that, that concrete slab. Yeah. And then you, you grow the polyps on that concrete yeah. slab. <laughs> um, what are the main roadblocks that need to be addressed to ensure the health of coral reefs over the, the long term? Um, reduce climate change. <laughs> Done. We'll do that tomorrow. Easy peasy. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's a really kind of, it's really tricky. I mean, yeah, so climate change is, is not going to happen overnight. So things that we can do are mitigate the impacts of other stresses, um, which are easier to control, um, like nutrient runoff, kind of. So uh, monitoring water quality is a big thing. Um, having um, restrictions on fishing, kind of, you know, the fish are part of that coral reef ecosystem. If you don't have the fish, um, especially the herbivores, um, which like to eat the algae, um, you know, the algae is going to kind of grow out of control and um, smother the corals. Um, so having, you know, fishing regulations is really important. Um, something really simple if you dive or snorkel, just following best dive and snorkel practices. So don't touch anything underwater. Be uh, wary of your fins. Don't stand on the reef. Um, control your buoyancy well. Um, so there, there are little things that we can all do to um, kind of, yeah, mitigate our impact on the reef. Uh, I mentioned sun cream earlier. Um, one thing that's good for us and for the reef is to use reef safe sunscreen. Um, so that's sun creams without oxybenzone in. Um, kind of choose something with non-nano zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. Um, they're yeah, they're kind of sun blocks rather than sun creams. Is it like a is there like a sticker or a stamp that refers to that or do you have to read the ingredient list no you definitely have to read your ingredients a lot of companies have kind of picked up on these kind of hot words like reef safe and eco-friendly 
um but there's no regulation on it um so it's definitely worth turning turning your sun cream over and having a look at the ingredients Mm -hmm. um look out for the like oxybenzone and and things if that's if that's in the ingredients then yeah choose something else (laughs) okay so those are little practical tips um one kind of trend that's happening at the moment is this um this fight against uh, plastic specifically single-use plastics yeah does that affect um the health of a coral reef system yeah um recently scientists have found that corals are ingesting microplastics really yeah um so you know one of the things that happens with plastics in the ocean is they just break down into smaller and smaller pieces they degrade from the salt and the sun um but during their time in the ocean they kind of leach a lot of chemicals but also absorb a lot of kind of toxic um what's the word toxic particles i guess so like heavy metals and things so with the corals ingesting this of course it's going to affect their health mm. okay so that's um, another thing that we can do yeah yeah because it's that is something that's gaining in popularity and i, I always want to kind of figure out how that actually links to specific animals in the ocean and it kind of so you can explain okay this actually affects this the corals because they consume these yeah but i mean it affects the corals themselves but you've also got to remember that these corals are are creating like this one animal creates a huge ecosystem and you don't just have corals in coral reefs but you have fish um you have turtles you have sharks rays um and the plastic affects all of these as well. One of the big things that we see in the Maldives is turtles entangled in fishing gear. Um, ghost fishing gear contributes about 46% of the plastic pollution in our oceans. So, um, yeah, fishing gear that kind of floats around the ocean with no one monitoring it um, has a huge impact on a lot of marine life, not just turtles, but other animals get entangled in it as well. Like, uh, whales and dolphins, manta rays, sharks, other other rays as well. So, um, yeah, like plastic does have a huge impact on the reef as like the whole reef ecosystem as a whole. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're nearing the end. We've got a couple more questions. Um, is it anything that I've missed that you'd like to touch on or do you think we've covered most bases? I think we've covered most bases. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that was pretty thorough. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, how how can people connect with you online? Uh, so I'm on Instagram um, at see beside me. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but not very regularly. So <laughs> I can't remember what my handle is on Twitter anyway. So that's probably so Instagram's easy. the main yeah. one. Yeah, connect with me on Instagram. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last question is, what message or question do you want to leave the conservation trap? I forgot this one. <laughs> you can read your notes. Uh, <laughs> no, I forgot to even consider it. <laughs> um, yeah, like, okay, so I think that with the whole climate crisis and kind of what's happening in the environment, it can feel very overwhelming and that we can't do anything that's going to have any significance on the environment. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, having to go vegan and stop flying and, um, 
things that can feel very extreme, but I think it's important to remember that veganism isn't necessarily like you don't have to stop eating all meat and all kind of you know meat or um, animal derived products like if you feel like you can't go full vegan that's okay like you it's just really important that we all try to do our best in kind of the situation that we're in so if that means that when you go shopping you take your own reusable bags and you try and shop um using less plastic that's great if it means that you want to kind of only eat plant-based a plant-based diet that's also great but it's also fine to try and eat less meat to have a more flexitarian diet um so don't feel like you have to do one extreme or the other you're either kind of really 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 contributing to the detriment of the planet or you're kind of doing everything you can like in the other extreme um so like you don't you don't fly, you don't eat any um, animal ba- any animal products, you don't, you know, you're kind of wearing more clothes instead of having to put any heating on your house at all. Like just, you know, I think it's really important that we all try and do what we can, where we can. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think a lot of people, it's quite like a, an emotional topic, understandably, but I think a lot of people maybe approach this from a binary perspective, like it's, if you don't live by this set of rules, then you're the devil kind of thing. You're like, you are killing the planet. Whereas obviously a continuum, it's not black and white. It's, you know, there is a spectrum, there's a scale, it's a continuum. And if you, if you don't kind of live by one set of rules, say veganism or not flying or or whatever it may be, sometimes that can be, um, you can feel so bad about it that you just kind of freeze, like you don't do anything. And I think that's the last thing you want to do. So I think, yeah, yeah a good point is just, just do the best you can. As long as you're, I think, as long as you're consciously trying to um, do the best that you can, then that's, that's all we can kind of be hoping for really. The last thing you want to be doing is beating yourself up, especially if you're on the same team. Like we're all, anyone who's listening to this podcast, is on team planet earth (laughs) like that's pretty much (laughs) we're on that same team so people uh if you're on that team don't beat anyone down from that same team because that's counterproductive so do your best and just be bloody kind to uh your teammates i reckon yeah like having the majority doing it imperfectly is better than having just the minority doing it perfectly Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again. And I will see you in the next episode.